Book Seven, Chapters One to Seventeen of the Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Gibbons. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Secadent, Baron de Montesquieu. Translated by Thomas Nugent. Book 7. Consequences of the different principles of the three governments with respect to sumptuary laws, luxury, and the condition of women. Chapter 1. Of Luxury. Luxury is ever in proportion to the inequality of fortunes. If the riches of a state are equally divided, there will be no luxury, for it is founded merely on the conveniences acquired by the labour of others. In order to have this equal distribution of riches, the law ought to give to each man only what is necessary for nature. If they exceed these bounds, some will spend, and others will acquire, by which means an inequality will be established. Supposing what is necessary for the support of nature to be equal to a given sum, the luxury of those who have only what is barely necessary will be equal to a cipher. If a person happens to have double that sum, his luxury will be equal to one. He that has double the latter's substance will have a luxury equal to three. If this be still doubled, there will be a luxury equal to seven so that the property of the subsequent individual being always supposed double to that of the preceding, the luxury will increase double, and a unit be always added in this progression. 0, 1, 3, 7, 15, 31, 63, 127. In Plato's Republic, luxury might have been exactly calculated. There were four sorts of censuses, or rates of estates, the first was exactly the term beyond poverty, the second was double, the third triple, the fourth quadruple to the first. In the first census, luxury was equal to a cipher, in the second to one, in the third to two, in the fourth to three, and thus it followed in an arithmetical proportion. Considering the luxury of different nations with respect to one another, it is in each state a compound proportion to the inequality of fortunes among the subjects, and to the inequality of wealth in different states. In Poland, for example, there is an extreme inequality of fortunes, but the poverty of the whole hinders them from having so much luxury as in a more opulent government. Luxury is also in proportion to the populousness of the towns, and especially of the capital so that it is in a compound proportion to the riches of the state, to the inequality of private fortunes, and to the number of people settled in particular places. In proportion to the populousness of towns, the inhabitants are filled with notions of vanity, and actuated by an ambition of distinguishing themselves by trifles. If they are very numerous, and most of them strangers to one another, their vanity redoubles, because there are greater hopes of success. As luxury inspires these hopes, 
each man affumes the marks of a fuperior condition ; but by endeavouring thus at diftinftion, every one becomes equal, and diftinftion ceafes : as all are defirous of refpeft, nobody is regarded. Hence arifes a general inconvenience. Thofe who excel in a profeffion, fet what value they pleafe on their labour. This example is followed by people of inferior abilities, and then there is an end of all proportion between our wants, and the means of fatisfying them. When I am forced to go to law, I muft be able to fee counfel. When I am fick, I muft have it in my power to fee a phyfician. It is the opinion of feveral, that the aflemblage of fo great a multitude of people in capital cities is an obftruction to commerce, becaufe the inhabitants are no longer at a proper diftance from each other. But I cannot think fo, for men have more defires, more wants, more fancies, when they live together. CHAPTER II. Of Sumptuary Laws in a Democracy we have observed that in a republic where riches are equally divided there can be no such thing as luxury and as we have shown in the fifth book that this equal distribution constitutes the excellence of republic government hence it follows that the less luxury there is in a republic the more it is perfect there was none among the old romans none among the lacedaemonians and in republics where this equality is not quite lost, the spirit of commerce, industry, and virtue renders every man able and willing to live on his own property, and consequently prevents the growth of luxury. The laws concerning the new division of lands, insisted upon so eagerly in some republics, were of the most salutary nature. They are dangerous only as they are sudden, by reducing instantly the wealth of some and increasing that of others they form a revolution in each family and must produce a general one in the state in proportion as luxury gains ground in a republic the minds of the people are turned towards their particular interests those who are allowed only what is necessary have nothing but their own reputation and the country's glory in view but a soul depraved by luxury has many other desires, and soon becomes an enemy to the laws that confine it. The luxury in which the garrison of Regium began to live was the cause of their massacring the inhabitants. No sooner were the Romans corrupted than their desires became boundless and immense. Of this we may judge by the price they set on things. A pitcher of Thalernian wine was sold for a hundred Roman denarii. A barrel of salt meat from the kingdom of Pontus cost four hundred. A good cook, four talents. And for boys, no price was reckoned too great. When the whole world, impelled by the force of corruption, is immersed in voluptuousness, what must then become a virtue? Chapter 3 Of Sumptuary Laws in an Aristocracy 
There is this inconvenience in an ill-conftituted ariftocracy, that the wealth centres in the nobility, and yet they are not allowed to fpend, for as luxury is contrary to the fpirit of moderation, it muft be banifhed thence. This government comprehends, therefore, only people who are extremely poor and cannot acquire, and people who are vaftly rich and cannot fpend. In Venice, they are compelled by the laws to moderation. They are so habituated to parsimony that none but courtesans can make them part with their money. Such is the method made use of for the support of industry. The most contemptible of women may be profuse without danger, whilst those who contribute to their extravagance consume their days in the greatest obscurity. Admirable in this respect were the institutions of the principal republics of Greece. The rich employed their money in festivals, musical choruses, chariots, horse races, and chargeable offices. Wealth was, therefore, as burdensome there as poverty. Chapter 4 Of Sumptuary Laws in a Monarchy Tacitus says that the Swedes, a German nation, has a particular respect for riches, for which reason they live under the government of one person. This shows that luxury is extremely proper for monarchies, and that under this government there must be no sumptuary laws. As riches, by the very constitution of monarchies, are unequally divided, there is an absolute necessity for luxury. Were the rich not to be lavish, the poor would starve. It is even necessary here that the expenses of the opulent should be in proportion to the inequality of fortunes, and that luxury, as we have already observed, should increase in this proportion. The augmentation of private wealth is owing to its having deprived one part of the citizens of their necessary support. This must therefore be restored to them. Hence, it is that for the preservation of a monarchical state, luxury ought continually to increase and to grow more extensive as it rises from the labourer to the artificer, to the merchant, to the magistrate, to the nobility, to the great officers of the state, up to the very prince, otherwise the nation will be undone. In the reign of Augustus, a proposal was made in the Roman Senate, which was composed of grave magistrates, learned civilians, and of men whose heads were filled with the notion of the primitive times, to reform the manners and luxury of women. It is curious to see in Dio with what art this prince eluded the importunate solicitations of these senators. This was because he was founding a monarchy and dissolving a republic. Under Tiberius, the aediles proposed in the Senate the re-establishment of the ancient sumptuary laws. This prince, who did not want sense, opposed it. The state, he said, could not possibly subsist in the present situation of things. How could Rome, how could the provinces live? We were frugal, 
while we were only masters of one city. Now we consume the riches of the whole globe, and employ both the masters and their slaves in our service. He plainly saw that sumptuary laws would not suit the present form of government. When a proposal was made under the same emperor to the senate, to prohibit the governors from carrying their wives with them into the provinces, because of the dissoluteness and irregularity which followed those ladies, the proposal was rejected. It was said that the examples of ancient austerity had been changed into a more agreeable method of living. They found there was a necessity for different manners. Luxury is therefore absolutely necessary in monarchies, as it is also in despotic states. In the former, it is the use of liberty. In the latter, it is the abuse of servitude. A slave appointed by his master to tyrannize over other wretches of the same condition, uncertain of enjoying tomorrow the blessings of today, has no other felicity than that of glutting the pride, the passions, and the voluptuousness of the present moment. Hence arises a very natural reflection. Republics end with luxury. Monarchies with poverty. Chapter 5. In what cases sumptuary laws are useful in a monarchy? Whether it was from a republican spirit, or from some other particular circumstance, sumptuary laws were made in Aragon, in the middle of the 13th century. James I ordained that neither the king nor any of his subjects should have above two sorts of dishes at a meal, and that each dish should be dressed only one way, except if it were game of their own killing. In our days, sumptuary laws have also been enacted in Sweden, but with a different view from those of Aragon. A government may make sumptuary laws with a view to absolute frugality. This is the spirit of sumptuary laws in republics, and the very nature of the thing shows that such was the design of those in Aragon. Sumptuary laws may likewise be established with a design to promote a relative frugality. When a government, perceiving that foreign merchandise, being at too high a price, will require such an exportation of home manufacturers as to deprive them of more advantages by the loss of the latter than they can receive from the possession of the former, they will forbid their being introduced. And this is the spirit of the laws which in our days have been passed in Sweden. Such are the sumptuary laws proper for monarchies. In general, the poorer a state the more it is ruined by its relative luxury, and consequently the more occasion it has for relative sumptuary laws. The richer a state, the more it thrives by its relative luxury, for which reason it must take particular care not to make any relative sumptuary laws. This we shall better explain in the book on commerce. Here we treat only of absolute luxury. Chapter 6 of the Luxury of China Sumptuary laws may, in some governments, be necessary for particular reasons. 
the people, by the influence of the climate, may grow so numerous, and the means of subsisting may be so uncertain, as to render a universal application to agriculture extremely necessary. As luxury in those countries is dangerous, their sumptuary laws should be very severe. In order, therefore, to be able to judge whether luxury ought to be encouraged or proscribed, we should examine first what relation there is between the number of people and the facility they have of procuring substance. In England, the soil produces more grain than is necessary for the maintenance of such as cultivate the land and of those who are employed in the woolen manufactures. This country may be therefore allowed to have some trifling arts and consequently luxury. In France, likewise, there is corn enough for the support of the husbandman and of the manufacturer. Besides, a foreign trade may bring in so many necessaries in return for toys that there is no danger to be apprehended from luxury. On the contrary, in China, the women are so prolific and the human species multiplies so fast that the lands, though never so much cultivated, are scarcely sufficient to support the inhabitants. Here, therefore, luxury is pernicious and the spirit of industry and economy is as requisite as in any republic. They are obliged to pursue the necessary arts and to shun those of luxury and pleasure. This is the spirit of the excellent decrees of the Chinese emperors. Our ancestors, says an emperor of the family of the Tangs, held it as a maxim that if there was a man who did not work, or a woman that was idle, somebody must suffer cold or hunger in the empire. And on this principle he ordered a vast number of the monasteries of bonds to be destroyed. The third emperor of the one and twentieth dynasty, to whom some precious stones were brought that had been found in a mine, ordered it to be shut up, not choosing to fatigue his people with working for a thing that could neither feed nor clothe them. So great is our luxury, says Chiaventi, that people adorn with embroidery the shoes of boys and girls whom they are obliged to sell is employing so many people in making clothes for one person, the way to prevent a great many from wanting clothes. There are ten men who eat the fruits of the earth to one employed in agriculture. And is this the means of preserving numbers from wanting nourishment? Chapter 7. Fatal Consequence of Luxury in China in the history of China, we find it has 22 successive dynasties, that is, it has experienced 22 general, without mentioning a prodigious number of particular, revolutions. The first three dynasties lasted a long time, because they were wisely administered, and the empire had not so great an extent as it afterwards obtained. But we may observe in general that all those dynasties began very well. Virtue, attention, and vigilance are necessary in China. These prevailed in the commencement of the dynasties and failed in the end. 
it was natural that emperors trained up in military toil, who had compassed the dethroning of a family immersed in pleasure, should adhere to virtue, which they had found so advantageous, and be afraid of voluptuousness, which they knew had proved so fatal to the family dethroned. But after the three or four first princes, corruption, luxury, indolence, and pleasure possessed their successors. They shut themselves up in a palace. Their understanding was impaired. Their life was shortened. The family declined. The grandees rose up. The eunuchs gained credit. None but children were set on the throne. The palace was at variance with the empire. A lazy set of people that dwelt there ruined the industrious part of the nation. The emperor was killed or destroyed by a usurper who founded a family, the third or fourth successor of which went and shut himself up in the very same palace. Chapter 8 Of Public Continency So many are the imperfections that attend the loss of virtue in women, and so greatly are their minds depraved when this principal guard is removed, that in a popular state, public incontinency may be considered as the last of miseries and as a certain forerunner of a change in the constitution. Hence, it is that the sage legislators of republican states have ever required of women a particular gravity of manners. They have proscribed not only vice, but the very appearance of it. They have banished even all commerce of gallantry, a commerce that produces idleness, that renders the women corrupters, even before they are corrupted, that gives a value to trifles, and debases things of importance, a commerce, in fine, that makes people act entirely by maxims of ridicule in which the women are so perfectly skilled. Chapter 9 Of the Condition or State of Women in Different Governments in monarchies, women are subject to very little restraint, because as the distinction of rank calls them to court, there they assume a spirit of liberty, which is almost the only one tolerated in that place. Each courtier avails himself of their charms and passions in order to advance his fortune, and as their weakness admits not of pride, but of vanity, luxury constantly attends them. In despotic governments, women do not introduce, but are themselves an object of luxury. They must be in a state of the most rigorous servitude. Every one follows the spirit of the government, and adopts in his own family the customs he sees elsewhere established. As the laws are very severe, and executed on the spot, they are afraid lest the liberty of women should expose them to danger. Their quarrels, indiscretions, repugnancies, jealousies, pikes, and that art, in fine, which little souls have of interesting great ones, would be attended there with fatal consequences. Besides, as princes in those countries make a sport of human nature, they allow themselves a multitude of women, and a thousand considerations oblige them to keep those women in close confinement. 
in republics women are free by the laws and restrained by manners luxury is banished thence and with it corruption and vice in the cities of greece where they were not under the restraint of a religion which declares that even amongst men regularity of manners is a part of virtue where a blind passion triumphed with a boundless insolence and love appeared only in a shape which we dare not mention while marriage was considered as nothing more than simple friendship such was the virtue simplicity and chastity of women in those cities that in this respect hardly any people were ever known to have a better and wiser polity chapter ten of the domestic tribunal among the romans the romans had no particular magistrates like the greeks to inspect the conduct of women the censors had not an eye over them as over the rest of the republic the institution of the domestic tribunal supplied the magistracy established among the greeks the husband summoned the wife's relatives and tried her in their presence this tribunal preserved the manners of the republic and at the same time those very manners maintained this tribunal for it decided not only in respect to the violation of the laws but also of manners now in order to judge of the violation of the latter manners are requisite the penalties inflicted by this tribunal ought to be and actually were arbitrary for all that relates to manners and to the rules of modesty can hardly be comprised under one code of laws it is easy indeed to regulate by laws what we owe to others but it is very difficult to comprise all we owe to ourselves the domestic tribunal inspected the general conduct of women but there was one crime which beside the animadversion of this tribunal was likewise subject to a public accusation this was adultery whether that in a republic so great a deprivation of manners interested the government or whether the wife's immorality might render the husband suspected or whether in fine they were afraid lest even honest people might choose that this crime should rather be concealed than punished chapter eleven in what manner the institutions changed at rome together with the government as manners were supported by the domestic tribunal they were also supported by the public accusation and hence it is that these two things fell together with the public manners and ended with the republic the establishing of perpetual questions that is the division of jurisdiction among the praetors and the custom gradually introduced of the praetors determining all causes themselves weakened the use of the domestic tribunal this appears by the surprise of historians who look upon the decisions which tiberius caused to be given by this tribunal as singular facts and as a renewal of the ancient course of pleading the establishment of monarchy and the change of manners put likewise an end to public accusations it might be apprehended lest a dishonest man 
affronted at the slight shown him by a woman, vexed at her refusal, and irritated even by her virtue, should form a design to destroy her. The Julian law ordained that a woman should not be accused of adultery till after her husband had been charged with favouring her irregularities, which limited greatly and annihilated, as it were, this sort of accusation. Sextus Quintus seemed to have been desirous of reviving the public accusation, but there needs very little reflection to see that this law would be more improper in such a monarchy as his than in any other. Chapter 12 Of the Guardianship of Women Among the Romans The Roman laws subjected women to a perpetual guardianship except they were under cover and subject to the authority of a husband. This guardianship was given to the nearest of the male relatives, and by a vulgar expression, it appears they were very much confined. This was proper for a republic, but not at all necessary in a monarchy. That the women among the ancient Germans were likewise under a perpetual tutelage appears from the different codes of the laws of the barbarians. This custom was communicated to the monarchies founded by these people, but was not of long duration. Chapter 13 Of the punishments decreed by the emperors against the incontinence of women. The Julian law ordained a punishment against adultery. But so far was this law, any more than those afterwards made on the same account, from being a mark of regularity of manners, that on the contrary it was a proof of their depravity. The whole political system in respect to women received a change in the monarchical state. The question was no longer to oblige them to a regularity of manners, but to punish their crimes. That new laws were made to punish their crimes was owing to their leaving those transgressions unpunished which were not of so criminal a nature. The frightful dissolution of manners obliged indeed the emperors to enact laws in order to put some stop to lewdness, but it was not their intention to establish a general reformation. Of this the positive facts related by historians are a much stronger proof then all these laws can be of the contrary. We may see in Dio the conduct of Augustus on this occasion, and in what manner he eluded, both in his Praetorian and Censorian office, the repeated instances that were made him for that purpose. It is true that we find in historians very rigid sentences, passed in the reigns of Augustus and Tiberius, against the lewdness of some Roman ladies. But by showing us the spirit of those reigns, at the same time they demonstrate the spirit of those decisions. The principal design of Augustus and Tiberius was to punish the dissoluteness of their relatives. It was not their immorality they punished, but a particular crime of impiety or high treason of their own invention, which served to promote a respect for majesty and answered their private revenge. Hence, it is that the Roman historians inveigh so bitterly against this tyranny. Chapter 14
The penalty of the Julian law was fmall. The emperors infifted that in pafling fentence, the judges fhould increafe the penalty of the law. This was the fubjeft of the invectives of hiftorians. They did not examine whether the women were deferving of punifhment, but whether they had violated the law in order to punifh them. One of the moft tyrannical proceedings of Tiberius was the abufe he made of the ancient laws. When he wanted to extend the punishment of a Roman lady beyond that inflicted by the Julian law, he revived the domestic tribunal. These regulations in respect to women concerned only senatorial families, not the common people. Pretences were wanted to accuse the great, which were constantly furnished by the dissolute behaviour of the ladies. In fine, what I have observed, namely, that regularity of manners is not the principle of monarchy, was never better verified than under those first emperors, and whoever doubts it need only read Tacitus, Suetonius, Juvenal, or Martial. Chapter 14. Sumptuary Laws Among the Romans We have spoken of public incontinence because it is the inseparable companion of luxury. If we leave the motions of the heart at liberty, how shall we be able to restrain the weaknesses of the mind? At Rome, besides the general institutions, the censors prevailed on the magistrates to enact several particular laws for maintaining the frugality of women. This was the design of the Fannian, Licinian, and Opian laws. We may see in Livy the great ferment the Senate was in when the women insisted upon the revocation of the Opian law. The abrogation of this law is fixed upon by Valerius Maximus as the period whence we may date the luxury of the Romans. Chapter 15 Of Dowries and Nuptial Advantages in Different Constitutions Dowries ought to be considerable in monarchies in order to enable husbands to support their rank and the established luxury. In republics, where luxury should never reign, they ought to be moderate, but they should be hardly at all in despotic governments, where women are in some measure slaves. The community of goods introduced by the French laws between man and wife is extremely well adapted to a monarchical government because the women are thereby interested in domestic affairs and compelled, as it were, to take care of their family. It is less so in a republic, where women are possessed of more virtue. But it would be quite absurd in despotic governments, where the women themselves generally constitute a part of the master's property. As women are in a state that furnishes sufficient inducements to marriage, the advantages which the law gives them over the husband's property are of no service to society. But in a republic, they would be extremely prejudicial, because riches are productive of luxury. In despotic governments, the profits accruing from marriage ought to be mere subsistence, and no more. Chapter 16. 
an excellent custom of the Semnites. The Semnites had a custom which in so small a republic, and especially in their situation, must have been productive of admirable effects. The young people were all convened in one place, and their conduct was examined. He that was declared the best of the whole assembly had leave given him to take which girl he pleased for his wife. The second best chose after him, and so on. Admirable institution! The only recommendation that young men could have on this occasion was their virtue and the services done their country. He who had the greatest share of these endowments chose which girl he liked out of the whole nation. Love, beauty, chastity, virtue, birth, and even wealth itself were all, in some measure, the dowry of virtue. A nobler and grander recompense, less chargeable to a petty state, and more capable of influencing both sexes, could scarcely be imagined. The Semnites were descended from the Lacedaemonians, and Plato, whose institutions are only an improvement of those of Lycurgus, enacted nearly the same law. Chapter 17 Of Female Administration It is contrary to reason and nature that women should reign in families, as was customary among the Egyptians, but not that they should govern an empire. In the former case, the state of their natural weakness does not permit them to have the preeminence. In the latter, their very weakness generally gives them more lenity and moderation, qualifications fitter for a good administration than roughness and severity. In the Indies, they are very easy under a female government and it is settled that if the male issue be not of a mother of the same blood, the females born of a mother of the blood royal must succeed. And then they have a certain number of persons who assist them to bear the weight of the government. According to Mr. Smith, they are very easy in Africa under female administration. If to this we add the example of England and Russia, we shall find that they succeed alike both in moderate and despotic governments. End of chapter 17 End of book 7 of Spirit of the Laws